Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. You want your oven really hot when you're making bread, so it makes that nice crust around it. So if you can, hold your arm inside of your oven and count to 30 without the heat becoming unbearable, then it's not hot enough to get that nice brown crust around your bread. I'm Robin Sessingham, and this is The Zest. Citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm, The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. We're so glad you found our podcast. Please subscribe for free at thezestpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like it, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find us as well. This week, we take a tour of Cracker Country Rural Living History Museum, where we explore the way pioneer Floridians cooked and the kinds of dishes that they made to celebrate the holidays more than 100 years ago. Then the Strass Center for the Performing Arts in Tampa is a huge operation with five theaters, an arts conservatory, and several restaurants. We talk to the chef who manages the culinary side of the Strass. Support for the Zest podcast comes from Seitenbacher brand natural foods like muesli cereals, oils, oatmeal, energy bars, gluten-free fruit gummies for the kids, organic coffee, and more. Available in supermarkets, health food stores, or online at seitenbacher.com. Before Instant Pots and Amazon wish lists, there were community hog killings and coffee with bacon grease. Those were the holiday traditions of rural Floridians in the late 1800s and early 1900s. We pay a visit to Cracker Country, the living history museum at the Florida State Fairgrounds in Tampa, to learn how the state's early settlers feasted for Christmas. Producer Delia Cologne spoke with Cindy Horton of Cracker Country about those early holiday foods. My name is Cindy Horton. I'm the Director of Museum Operations here at the Florida State Fairgrounds. And there are several museum exhibits on grounds. Our biggest and the one that everyone knows the best, I guess, is Cracker Country, which is a rural Florida living history museum. Tell me about the name Cracker Country. Where does that name come from? That comes from the tradition of cattle ranching here in Florida. Many of the buildings that you see here at Cracker Country come from the central part of Florida, where some of our cattle ranching traditions began. There is a 120-mile trail that was a cattle drive trail that runs through the center of the state that's called the Florida Cracker Trail that comes through there. And the Carlton family, the descendants of Doyle Carlton, who was the governor of Florida during the Great Depression created Cracker Country as a museum and in fact we have the home that Governor Carlton was born in in 1885 here on the property and that did come from Hardy County down near where the Cracker Trail begins. Wow now I heard that the term Cracker 
comes from the cracking of the whip that the cowboys use. In Georgia, we heard crackers uh, referred to as people who crack the corn. And here in Florida, it's the cattle whips. What time period are we talking about? There's like a, a circle of buildings. There's an old schoolhouse. There's an old general store, an old church. And they're all made out of wood, it looks like. So what time period are we sort of supposed to be transported to here? All of the buildings that are here at Cracker Country were constructed in various parts of the state between 1870 and about 1910, uh, and then they were moved from their original foundations here to the museum. So in a rural community, you wouldn't have seen them all, you know, neatly placed the way they are here, but as you mentioned, we do have a lot of buildings that just represent home life and transportation and commerce, as you might have found in a rural community in Florida during that uh, late 19th century, early 20th century time period. Let's talk about the food. We're here just outside the garden. What's growing and what might have shown up on the holiday table? You know, in Florida, there's such an abundance because of our wonderful climate here. The growing season is so long. There would have been an abundance of fresh fruits and vegetables growing this time of year, as well as flowers and spices, canned goods that would have been able to uh, be transported to Florida from other parts of the country, some things that wouldn't have been possible even 30 years before because of the railroads coming to Florida and the invention of somewhat insulated rail cars that could be used as icebox cars to transport goods to and from Florida. So by this time period, food wasn't necessarily only just what you would find close to your home. You certainly would be able to get what might have been exotic uh, just a few years before from other parts of the country. Um, but most any house in a rural community would have had what we have right behind us here, which is a kitchen garden. And you would have had staple things growing in there this time of year. We have some sorts of greens. We have Brussels sprouts. We have broccoli. We have cabbages. Of course, citrus would be ripening around this time of the year. And all of those things would have shown up in some form or another on the holiday table. Hmm. In some form or another, how were they prepared? I mean, today we think of like the sweet potato casserole with the marshmallows and maybe some roasted root vegetables and that type of thing. What would it have looked like on the table? It would have been very similar to that, I think. Uh, things like uh, sweet potatoes and white potatoes probably would just have been just have been baked very simply as we do today. Things like green beans and other vegetables might have been, if they were something from another place, they might have come here as commercially available canned things. Or in a rural community, of course, people were a little more self sufficient and would have probably been canning things from earlier in the year. And uh, it's easy enough to cook dried beans and things like that, kind of reconstitute those sorts of things. And as far as meats, Florida has, has always had a pretty abundant wild turkey population. So the kinds of meats that we associate with our holidays today, like turkey and ham and goose, um, those kinds of things would have been available back then and would have shown up on the holiday table as well. Huh. So not too different from today. Really not. Really not. There are some traditions that were kind of unique to the time. A couple that I can think of from the fall that would involve food would have been sugarcane syrup grinding and boiling. 
uh, and also hog killing. Those were both two community events that happened in the fall of the year. I'm, I'm making a face. That's why you're laughing. <laughs> the hog killing. Tell me more about that. Let's so go that there. Would have been, that would have been a social gathering. When it was time to kill hogs, you want to do that in the cooler time of the year, as if we have a cooler time of year here in Florida. But it helps to keep the meat from spoiling quickly. And, you know, hogs, this is a very large animal, and you might have shared that with several other of your neighbors. So they would have, have slaughtered the hogs this time of year and then processed the animal for all of its many, many, many parts. There's um, something that I've seen in several books that say, you know, they used every part except the squeal. Of a, of a hog. Um, and that might have been, you know, fresh meat. It might have been, they might have boiled down the hoofs to make jellies. They would also have salted and smoked a lot of meat. In fact, we have a smokehouse here on the property that dates back to about 1900, where they would have packed strips of meat and roasts of meat in salt. And salt and smoke, of course, are curing mechanisms that retard the growth of mold and bacteria, which was extremely important in an age before air conditioning and refrigeration. Good point. Now, as far as the hog itself, would this be an animal that they raised, or would they just go out and find a wild hog? By this time period, this would probably have more likely been animals that were raised for that purpose and, you know, specifically fed and fattened up um, so that they would provide a lot of meat to a family or community. This is a lot to digest, no pun intended. (laughs) Let's talk about sweets. What's Christmas without cookies and pies and candy canes? Did they have those things back then? I think that they did. One cake that we do every year that's uh, displayed on our kitchen table in the Carlton House for both Christmas in the country and for the Florida State Fair is called a jam cake, which is basically just either a yellow or a white kind of very rich butter cake, which has some sort of fruit jelly or jam between the layers and all over the top, which was a, a very sweet dessert for the time period. There would have also been pies made out of lots of different things and not just necessarily things you would find here in Florida. Obviously, you know, things like key lime pies and orange pies, citrus pies, things that you would find here, but also canned apples and things like that were prominent here. So you're starting to see apple pies and things made from fruit from other places show up on holiday tables. Oh, so the apples would be an example of something that came in on the train. I didn't think about that. Mm -hmm. You think American as apple pie, but not always. (laughs) (laughs) Not if you lived where apples can't grow, no. Good point. How about drinks? We think of eggnog and some traditions, coquito or special Christmas cocktails and um, apple cider and cocoa. We just made hot cocoa yesterday because it dipped below 60 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) It's winter for us. It's, It's cocoa season. So what would they have been drinking back then? Well, I think that there would have been similar things. There would have been wines that they might have had. One of the hot drinks, uh, and I just saw a recipe for this, which just doesn't sound good at all to me, but apparently was a little bit of a delicacy, was coffee with bacon grease in it, believe it or not. That sounds like the bulletproof coffee. Right? <laughs> that's, that's what my husband said. Actually, I was telling him about that recently, and that's what he said. That's, that's bulletproof coffee, isn't it? I think it's with butter now. <laughs> yes. They were ahead of their time. So coffee with bacon grease. Yeah. Mm. Get out. <laughs> we can have some. We can make some after this. If no, I'm good. I'm, I'm good. I'm just going <laughs> to stick with the water. I'm, I'm just fine with the water. We have to talk about cooking methods. Is there a kitchen on the property? There is. There is a kitchen on the property that has a very spectacular large wood-burning iron stove in it. 
And it, uh, one of the most interesting things to me about this stove is, you know, we are so used to seeing those temperature dials on our cooking resources today. And they really didn't have any fancy dials or thermometers to measure their cooking temperatures. And if you look at recipes from the time period, most of them have descriptions of heat, like they'll say to cook slow or cook low or moderate or high heat. One thing that and I've heard this several times, I don't know if this is is one of those things that's an old wives' tale, if it's actually true, is that you want your oven really hot when you're making bread, so it makes that nice crust around it. So if you can hold your arm inside of your oven and count to 30 without the heat becoming unbearable, then it's not hot enough to get that nice brown crust around your bread. I don't need the brown crust that bad. No, I'll stick with my kitchen thermometer, thank you. But that's why at some of these recipes, it's, it is a little hard to look at primary source cookbooks and translate these recipes into, into today's recipes because we don't, you know, we don't really know what those temperatures where we can sort of guess. But some of them will just say cook. <laughs> you know, and it doesn't give you doesn't give you time. It doesn't give you so. There's um, a lot of that inferred. We all know what this means. That you know really doesn't translate down through the ages very well. Can we see the oven? Yeah. This is fun. Since I don't have to live like this every day. Oh gosh, can you imagine? <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. So what building is this? This is the Carlton House. It was built in 1885, as I mentioned, Governor Doyle Carleton, who was Florida's governor during the Great Depression, was born in this house. And they, of course, were ranchers, and uh, they had uh, orange groves on the property as well. So they were, you know, full-time working Florida's pioneer ranchers and citrus growers. Um, and they, had, they ended up with 10 children in all, one girl and nine boys that were raised in this house. And... This kitchen, we are not entirely sure if this kitchen was originally attached to this house or if it might have been a little ways away. Um, that was very, very common to have a kitchen attached by a breezeway to the main house or somehow separate from the building that you actually lived in for a couple of reasons. One, might be fire danger, but obviously you see this house has fireplaces in every room, so that probably wasn't the biggest danger, but it may have just been the heat in the summertime. You wouldn't necessarily want to radiate heat throughout your Florida house um, from a big stove like this. This one is, this is spectacular, this big cast iron stove that we have here, but it has on the, uh, underneath it, you can see those compartments there. You can build a fire in there. There's a layer of hot bricks underneath there that radiates heat up for baking. And as we talked about, there's no temperature control anywhere. But this is a beautiful stove. I mean, it's that shiny black uh, cast iron. It's the size of a modern stove with mm -hmm. all the little trap doors. <laughs> Some of the doors are um, ovens. This the the big the big door, of course, is the main part of the oven. You see on the top there. That is actually you see the white part there is like a roll top that comes up, and you can put things in there just to keep them warm after they're done cooking, which is probably what they did a lot of, especially with um, you know things like biscuits and, and breads and maybe desserts and things like that. Um, you could put them up there to keep them a bit warm until everything else was done. On the top, we've got burners all over the place. This one is a six-burner stove, so very much 
the same as, as we have on our stoves today. You would also, if you needed to iron some clothes, you would take a, a heavy wrought iron, actual iron, and stick it on top of one of those burners and get it hot so that you could iron your clothes as well. That's handy. Yeah. <laughs> and when I was little, my mom would put the straightening comb for my hair on the stove. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, who's doing all of this work? Is it the lady of the house, the daughters of the house? Did they have servants? I mean, this is a lot of work. This is a lot of work. Um, In a rural community, chances are it would mostly have been the women of the house who would be cooking. If it was a social event like the cane grinding or or hog killing or something like that, might be several, uh, the women of several families coming together to cook a big meal. But yes, this was work that, that fell quite often to the women. (laughs) so glad to be alive today oh no kidding no kidding what Um, would we do without our instant pots goodness and you know a lot of the kitchen implements that they use during this time are pretty recognizable to us today they're just not electrified Uh, we don't churn our own butter or any of that stuff anymore but certainly mixers and you know things like that that we use today um, were around during this period they were just hand cranked Uh, instead of, you know, plug them into the wall variety. That long-handled rod or cast iron thing that you see right there above the stove with the little frilly things on the end of it, that's actually a toaster. and You could put bread directly into the fire. I could see that. And it looks like something you would use today if you went camping and you wanted to make uh, grilled cheese or something like that. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And the kids, you know, when they come here, we do uh, about 25,000 kids here a year for field trips, elementary school field trips. And it's always fun to watch them. They get so excited about the opportunity to churn butter. We have a, a sugar cane grinding mill that's supposed to be pulled by a mule during Christmas in the country. We'll get four or five kids at a time and let them push it around. And the kids just think that's so much fun. And their parents are like, she won't even carry her dishes and put them in the sink at home. Exactly. And now she's churning butter and she thinks it's great because it's a toy. Yep. My daughter was just here for a field trip the other day with her class and yep. she came home with a candle that she dipped herself and yes. now she won't even pick up her socks. There put them in the exactly. hamper. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You've mentioned Christmas in the country a couple of times. What is that? Christmas in the country is our annual celebration. It's coming up this year on December the 14th from 10 to 4. Cracker Country will be open and the whole place will be decorated as people in a rural Florida community might have decorated in uh, the end of the 19th, early 20th century. There are a lot of things that will be going on. We'll be making salt dough ornaments that people can paint to take home with them um, and other uh, holiday activities that will be going on that day. We'll have a band on the stage. You will not see any twinkly lights. There are no malls here. It's a little taste of what the holidays might have been like in Florida in a rural community in the 19th century. This is fascinating. Now, I have a question. Who was influencing what they were eating? Because obviously you're limited by um, what can grow here, what's available on the train, what you're able to cook in the stove with no temperature control. But I think about people like... Native Americans or African Americans, or I don't know if immigrants were coming to Florida at this time, but what was the influence that they had on Cracker Country cooking traditions? 
Well, you know, there were a lot of different cultures actually in Florida during this time period. Really right after the Civil War became a time when people were migrating south into Florida. And as we know, that has not stopped to this day. <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. So they are bringing um, cultures. They're, they're bringing their culture with them, which of course means they're bringing their food with them. Obviously, there's a lot of Spanish influence here, Native American influence here, people from the West Indies. You see spices showing up in cooking and things. In ice, more isolated rural communities, people sort of stayed in, in large part sort of to themselves. But we had Korean communities here. We had Japanese populations here. So we did have people from lots of different cultures here in Florida. And uh, by the turn of the 20th century, you start to see different spices and different cooking traditions start to show up in other cultures cooking as well. So I think we, we have seen some proof that... Uh, um, people were learning from each other. Very cool. So what's the biggest takeaway here? What would you say are the biggest differences in how we ate Christmas dinner over 100 years ago versus today? I think it would have been in the preparation of the food. I think, you know, now we have so many choices. You can order something from a restaurant and have it all catered to your home. You can get various things. We just have so much variety at our fingertips today. And people were starting to have variety from other places, but most of the food, whether it was, you know, canned things that they could could buy, things that they could barter or trade with neighbors, or animals that they raise themselves or vegetables that they raise themselves, they would have been doing all of the food preparation themselves. Sounds exhausting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Cindy Horton, thank you so much. This was absolutely fascinating and happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to you. That was Cracker Country's Cindy Horton speaking with Delia Cologne. You can learn more about the holiday traditions of Florida's early settlers and find the recipe for jam cake at thezestpodcast.com. The Strad Center for the Performing Arts in downtown Tampa is the largest performing arts venue in the Southeast. That means lots of hungry ticket holders. Every day, the venue's culinary team puts on its own performance of sorts, not only providing food for its restaurants, but also catering on-site weddings, meetings, and other events. Delia went behind the scenes with the Strad Center's executive chef, Ed Steinhoff. In his office just off the kitchen, Chef Ed talked about why he's constantly changing the menus and how chicken soup was the way into one celebrity's heart. My name is Ed Steinhoff. I am the executive chef at the Strauss Center for the Performing Arts. Now, what does that entail? Okay, so at the Strauss Center, we have three restaurants, Maestro's Restaurant, Maestro's Cafe, and Maestro's on the River. We also support Steam Heat Cafe with all the food that they serve there and all the concession stands that we do throughout the building as well. And all this food is coming out of one kitchen? For the most part, yeah. Most of the food comes out of the main kitchen, and we do have one small satellite kitchen downstairs where we we finish it. But yes, for the most part, all the food is prepped in in our main kitchen. I don't think of a performing arts center as a dining destination, but you're right, it is. And in fact, my husband and I met at Maestro's at a networking event, and we've been married for 11 years. So strangely plays a role in my story. Are people surprised to learn that there's such serious like culinary cred happening at a performing arts center? I think so. I think it lends itself really well 
to have a destination to eat at a performing arts center. You're coming to the show. A lot of times you want to make a, a great night of it. You want to get some nice food. It's great. You're already on the property. You're here. We have the restaurants that suit everybody's pocketbook. You know, we have a, a nice fine dining restaurant. The cafe is a, a more of a, a buffet, a little bit lower priced. And then, you know, we have the light affair at, at, uh, on the river. It really, really lends itself well to have this type of, of restaurant here at the center. How unusual is that for a performing arts center? I think most of them have some kind of culinary experience. I don't know that they all have what we have here. We really do a lot culinarily. What are some of the most popular dishes? The difference here is that every show that comes into town, there is a new menu for. And the new menu is themed toward the show. Can you give me some examples? Yes. So during the show, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, one of the items that we're doing is a steak, but it it has a like a, a chocolate barbecue demi-glaze. Some shows are really easy to theme. Others, this one, not so easy because it's mostly uh, sweets. So it, it's easy for my pastry chef to theme this menu, not so easy for me. Other shows are, are much easier. So I'll either theme the food or I'll theme the title of the food so that you'll, you'll understand that it's coming from this show. What's an example of a show that was easy to theme? The show we did with uh, Gloria Stefan, On Your Feet, that was excellent because we were able to, to find a good niche in the Cuban food and we made really, really nice Cuban food for that week. Sometimes I'll make an Italian theme. I think for the Bronx Tale, I did a lot of Italian food. I do a lot of research into the characters of the show, the songs that are performed during the show. So it gives me titles, it gives me names and things like that. And I can, I can rhyme things that go with it. So in, in that aspect, yeah, it does help me. Do you get to watch the shows? I can. Usually our, serve, our dinner service is over in time for me to change and get to the shows. I don't go to many of them because I, I, I spend a long time here. During I get here, you know, most times eight or nine o'clock in the morning. And by the time we're, we're done for the day, I'm pretty much ready to go home. Do you feel like being a chef and providing food for these events is its own type of performance? You may think so. Yeah, I, I think from the outside looking in, it's almost like that because we're part of the experience. You know, when people come in and they do see that we spent the time to to theme something. And I think they enjoy that aspect of the show even before they get to the show. So we're, what we hope is to is to give them a good impression as they're walking in the door. And when they leave, they're nice and happy when they get to the show. So it becomes a great full night for them. Do you feed the performers as well? Once in a while, we feed performers. We often more feed their crew. If their load-in is, is at 3 o'clock in the morning, we're here for breakfast at 4 o'clock in the morning making it happen. We just did it on Saturday for Baby Shark. They're in town. We, we fed their crew at like 5 o'clock in the morning, and then we fed them for lunch, and then we fed them for dinner. And that sometimes will happen even while we're doing these restaurants, where even while we're opening these restaurants, we'll, we'll have catering events during the shows, it gets a little difficult in, in the size of the kitchen that we have. That's so funny. Like, my three-year-old loves Baby Shark. And to think that there are people up early 
making breakfast for the baby shark crew. It just blows my mind. What did they order? Just uh, goldfish? What do you make for baby shark crew? <laughs> it was just your basic breakfast and, and lunch. You know, a, a lot of performers now are, are very health conscious. So, you know, we, we make sure we're doing a lot of gluten-free, a lot of vegetarian. And again, we do that on all of our menus. Have you cooked for anyone whose name we'd recognize? Can you drop any names? What are the stars eating? That's what we want to know. You know what? I did make um, Adam Sandler. When he was here, I made him chicken soup because he was sick. He was here with a show with uh, David Spade and and some other comedic actors. And uh, he was sick and he asked us especially for chicken soup. And I I made him chicken noodle soup. Oh, that's so sweet. Someone like him, who's such a big star, you would think he has everything in the world he needs. He can buy anything. There's nothing anyone can do for him. But something like making chicken soup for someone when they're sick, that's universal. That just feels like love. Yeah, I think, um, you know, at the end of the day, he's just a, a city kid whose who's mom probably made him chicken soup when he was sick. And he's, he's on tour. And what's he going to do? And that's what he decided he wanted. So we'll, we'll make anything. If we don't have it, we'll go out and shop for it and, and make it happen. I love that. So what's your background? How did you get into this? I'm from New York originally, from Brooklyn. I own my own business there. It's a deli and a bakery, and we did a lot of catering. And after 9-11, when things weren't great in New York, I decided it was time to move. And, you know, we had some family in town here. So we moved, and um, I started working in a restaurant and we just kept moving up and moving up and I ended up coming here to the Straz. So it's been a, it's been a nice journey for me uh, since 2002 and I'm really enjoying my journey so far. Yeah. Amazing. Chef Edward Steinhoff, thank you so much and break a leg. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. That was Ed Steinhoff of the Straz Center for the Performing Arts speaking with Delia Cologne. Chef Ed shared the chicken soup recipe that he made for Adam Sandler. You can find it on our website, thezestpodcast.com. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Robin Sussingham. Delia Cologne and I produce The Zest with help from Megan Trimble, Mark Hayes, and Craig George. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media.